Welcome to the, the 2019 uh, Clement Attlee Memorial Lecture, uh, our annual event in honour of Attlee, who studied modern history here from 1901 to 1904. Uh, my name is Ben Jackson, I'm one of the organisers of, of the lecture, and it's a great pleasure to be able to introduce Lisa Nandy as our Attlee lecturer this year. Uh, Lisa is the MP for Wigan. Uh, she worked in the voluntary sector before becoming an MP in 2010, and as an MP she served in a number of shadow ministerial roles, including Shadow Secretary of State for Energy and Climate Change. Uh, but in addition to that, that kind of, uh, sort of shadow ministerial work, she's also done a lot of thinking and writing about the divisions in British society and politics uh, that were revealed by the 2016 EU referendum, among other things. And she's done a lot of work on the way in which the British economy and the British state is fracturing uh, politics. And it's on those kinds of themes that I think she's going to talk to us today under the title of uh, Populism and the Death of Liberal Democracy. So uh, please join me in welcoming Lisa. Um, I was going to start with something quite grand, but actually I walked in here, felt massively intimidated, and then remembered that the last time I was here, I was 17 years old, and my sister had just started as a student at this college, and I was extremely drunk, and I found myself somewhere near a statue, a very strange statue, Shelley, yeah, and I'm not sure I ever found my way to her room, so I'm fairly sure I slept there, so I thought, right, well, the bar is low, and I'm just going to aim to get out of here at the end of the night, so that's what I'm, that's what I'm pitching for, let's see if we can do it. And I wanted to talk about populism, why? Because... If I've learned anything in the last three years, it's that progress is not inevitable. We've watched things fall apart. The centre cannot hold. With political violence, rising hate crime, the assassination of an MP, a friend of mine, it's felt at times that we're heading for that memorable Yates prophecy, mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. And six weeks ago, the Prime Minister stood in Downing Street and it felt to me that a line was crossed that... It really did feel like a point of no return. You, the public, have had enough, she said. You're tired of the infighting. You're tired of the political games and the arcane procedural rows. Tired of MPs talking about nothing else but Brexit when you have real concerns about our children's schools, our national health service, knife crime. You want this stage of the Brexit process to be over and done with. I agree. I am on your side. It is now time for MPs to decide. And this is an age of populism, from the Tea Party and Occupy Wall Street in the USA to La Front Nationale, the AFD, Syriza, Podemos, the Indignados in Europe. In just a few years, populism has leapt from fringe protest to shaping and even dominating the mainstream. Politics is operating on a new set of rules, and I feel it every day in the work that I do locally, but in the work that I do nationally in Parliament too, that we are floundering. And this is particularly true, I think, in Britain, where populism is largely, not exclusively, but largely alien to our recent history, where attempts by politicians like May, often themselves part of the elite, to frame their interest as the interest of the people, blocked by a privileged elite, has spread like wildfire in a relatively short space of time. And this is, as Cass Muddy puts it, a thin-centred ideology that considers society to be ultimately separated into two homogenous and antagonistic camps, the pure people versus the corrupt elite. And I think thin-centred is a good way to describe populism because it only really 
has life breathed into it and is given meaning when it's attached to an ideology of one sort or another. And I think there's a tendency in Britain to misunderstand this and to conflate populism with right-wing nationalism, sometimes authoritarian movements. And it means that we're blind to the left-wing populism that has emerged and had a profound influence on our political debate in recent years. Our left-wing leaders who now, across the board, employ populist techniques that are inspired by Latin American socialists and the social protests that have emerged in Europe and the USA. <coughs> and by seeing it as a version only of far-right ideology, we've missed the paradox of populism, that history is littered with examples of how populism has been the means by which millions of people mobilise to change the world. There is a positive side to this story too, but at the same time, there are plenty of examples of how populist sentiments of us versus them have poisoned our political discourse. I was thinking the other day when there was a demonstration outside Parliament and I was accosted by a group of uh, uh, demonstrators calling me traitor. I was with a Tory MP and we were surrounded and there was, you know, you know lots and lots of anger. Um, and I was thinking back to 2015. Before 2015, I don't remember hearing the word traitor or this term betrayal outside of far-right rallies. But now, every time I take part in a debate in the House of Commons, I hear it from politicians of all parties and at every level. And when we walk outside the gates of Parliament, it seems to me no surprise that that is reflected back to us by the public who hear and utilise these concepts too. But this isn't the only way in, this, in which this us versus them has sort of permeated the political discourse. Consider this tweet. These sick Asian paedophiles are finally facing justice. I want to commend the bravery of the victims. For too long they were ignored. Not on my watch. There will be no no-go areas. It sounds, I think, like a far-right leader. It was the Home Secretary late last year. The them Asian paedophiles and presumably the elites who support them. Not on my watch, the strongman leader who comes in to defend the interests of the people. And um, what about this? Unforgivable that 610 MPs skipped yesterday's debate on climate change. Young people on strike are showing leadership while truant politicians shirk responsibility. That was the leader of the Green Party. And I put this in on purpose because she's a friend of mine and someone I admire enormously. But that language of betrayal was used to describe what was in fact an oversubscribed debate in which many MPs couldn't get in to speak. Why does this matter? Because... This kind of extreme language obscures rather than enlightens. It offers no explanation about how change is made in politics. It shuts people out of the process and it shakes our faith in each other and in the system. It ignites rage, it provokes blame, but it misdirects that energy. And in doing so, it provides a block on much needed change. And that's why I think... For someone like me who campaigned for Remain, I was in the Shadow Cabinet at the time, and I spent most of my time in those northern towns like Wigan, Bolton, Sunderland, Middlesbrough, Redcar, who voted to leave, and have spent a lot of time in Leave and Remain areas ever th since. It's somehow to me why these two major campaigns, the Vote Leave on the one hand and the People's Vote on the other, are examples of how that willingness to embrace populist rhetoric ultimately ends up wrecking democratic debate. They offer simplistic solutions, just leave with no deal. Just hold a referendum, Remain will win, on the promise that the question is settled and then we can just move on. They admit of only one right and one wrong answer, one moral 
one immoral. But the problem of a deeply divided nation and the many, many heartfelt views on Brexit and more importantly, all the things that Brexit has come to symbolise to people are not going to vanish. They are complex, they're demanding of nuance and they will not be wished or voted away. These are complicated problems that we're grappling with. But we should have known that this was coming 80 years ago. In a moment of similar rupture, Michael Young warned about the challenges that we would face in a globally interdependent world. He called this pamphlet Small Man, Big World in recognition of the tension between the nature of this big interdependent global world and the very, very human need for a sense of grounding and belonging and agency. And instead of heeding these warnings and grappling with how to deal with and communicate complexity, it seems to me that our leaders across the political spectrum have taken an if-you-can't-beat-them-join-them sort of approach. And this has allowed a political discourse to develop that simplifies almost everything into questions of right and wrong, good and bad, for and against. It was best summed up for me quite recently in the question, Churchill, hero or villain? And this binary is surely just nonsense. It is stupid. We deserve a better debate than this. And I, I can't help but think that the man who's, in whose memory this lecture is held every year would have been appalled by where we've ended up. Writing in 1980, Jim Callaghan said, if Attlee were alive today, his virtues would not be fashionable in some quarters. He would place as much emphasis on ethical as on principles as on detailed programmes on the bounden duty we owe one another as much as our rights, that radical change needs to be made persuasive if it is to be acceptable and become permanent, and that party members have an obligation to work as a team and have no right to insist on the last drop of their particular sectarianism to the exclusion of all else. Which bit of modern politics could genuinely be described like this? And Attlee understood that the foundation of democratic liberty is a willingness to believe that other people may perhaps be wiser than oneself. And so he was able to build a socialist consensus that lasted across political parties for decades. How impossible it is to imagine that emerging from our political culture today. Because populist politics with its notion of the homogenous people shuts down dissent. It reduces democracy to a tug of war in which might is right, where different views, different priorities, different experiences can be erased, and where minority views can be silenced. And this is the poison, I think, that's been injected into our public life. And more than that, it threatens a political system that has long recognised the power struggle that is inherent in our politics, and evolved over hundreds of years in order to incorporate that plurality of preferences and allow us to negotiate our way through these shared and many challenges in the interests of the and good. And it's no wonder then in that context that these populist attacks on those liberal democratic institutions that were built to embody these ideals and to mediate difference have stepped up in recent years and from all quarters. So the Daily Mail labels the judiciary enemies of the people, while Eurosceptic Tories single out individual civil servants and seek to make them targets of public anger. The Tories have long claimed that trade unions seek to subvert democracy, but recently they've started to move into the territory of um, criticising, even legislating to silence charities. 
But this problem is not confined to the right. Supporters of the Labour leader seek to undermine any institution that is critical of him or the party that he leads. When the Equality and Human Rights Commission announced that it was investigating anti-Semitism in the Labour Party, it was suggested by a senior elected Labour official on Labour's ruling body that it should be abolished and found strong support in some quarters. And Labour shadow cabinet members regularly appear on the media, railing against the mainstream media and fake news while the BBC comes under fire from all quarters. Now these sentiments are echoed on the right, the far right by violent Islamophobes like Stephen Yaxley-Lennon who goes by the name of Tommy Robinson or Milkshake as we like to call him now in the north of England. He and his friends mobilise supporters in these rallies outside the BBC, outside Parliament they peddle conspiracy theories about the elites inside. Even before the Prime Minister echoed this attempt to pit Parliament against the people, there had been a split in the Labour Party which pitted the will of MPs against the will of Labour Party members and in the ensuing battle the Parliamentary Party not only lost, you could say deservedly, but was successfully portrayed by some of the most senior figures in the party in precisely those populist terms of the corrupt elite who subvert the will of the people. Now I think our institutions won't survive this onslaught, should we care? Well, there are parts of the left now in the ascendancy in Britain that see these institutions as part of a rigged system that exists to dupe the people and that must be erased. There are, as Matt Bolton and Harry Pitts put it, parts of the left and right who luxuriate in the flames licking at the sides of liberal society. But those people on the left and right are wrong because the survival of a vital centre, as Michael Walzer says, is also the precondition of an active left. Never think that the blood-dimmed tide is a threat only to immigrants and minorities. It is a threat to us all. We all need constitutional protection, he says. We all need a centre that holds. We have to stand in the centre and on the left at the same time. That may be complicated, but it is our historical task. And those who believe, then, in civil discourse who respect the truth must be willing to find common cause. This is a difficult battle. You have to fight against the tide of partisan rhetoric that dominates both my own party as well as the Conservatives and much of modern politics as well. But there is no other option. Because for hundreds of years, our liberal democratic institutions have provided the objective space on which common ground can be built. The very specific strength of that unwritten constitution has been its ability to adapt and in doing so to contain political conflict. The early decades of the Industrial Revolution, poor law reform, the Reform Act of 1832 and growing class conflict, these were far more violent in both word and deed than today. And the decades following the English Civil War and the Glorious Revolution marginalised religious extremism and laid the foundations of a modern political system which sought moderation through the balance of power and protection, crucially, from tyranny and bigotry. It's the very fact that our democracy can no longer contain these political conflicts that have been growing over recent decades that has caused us to live through this period of profound disruption. And I want to argue that populism is a symptom of that disruption, not the cause. It feeds on and seeks to amplify division, but it is giving voice to grievances that already exist and have not found resolution through our existing institutions. And the question that too few of us who believe in the liberal democratic settlement are asking is what are those grievances that have enabled populists to find such fertile ground? And why haven't our institutions allowed them to be resolved? Uh, some people who 
argue that this is driven by a backlash against liberal culture. Others say it's a reaction against globalisation. You can find as many theories about why this is happening as you can find people who are discontented with the status quo. In my view, it's not too complicated. Populist support is largely strongest in those areas where in, in, uh, industry has been lost and where populations are in decline. My home in Wigan is one. In Germany, the USA, Australia, Austria, it's outside those big urban centres where people are more distant from power and feel it daily, where the loss of trust is felt most acutely, where decades of relative decline has seen young people moving away for lack of good jobs, that the fertile ground for populism is found. It is an economic problem, but it's also a problem of a political system that's failed to give representation to those affected. We've shrugged our shoulders and said this is progress while our social fabric unravels. It's austerity, cuts to public services, a constant state of stress and grinding anxiety about the future has provided fertile ground for revolt. And when I was campaigning in that EU referendum in towns across the UK, there was this toxic mix of economic decline, loss of agency and dignity and a sense that people were being ignored by a political system hundreds of miles away that was not only unresponsive but deeply uninterested and at times downright disrespectful of them, their lives and their choices. And this is what Will Jennings describes as two Englands with very different experiences of globalisation. One governs and the other is ruled. And you find there in the, amongst the rules, a deep feeling of powerless and a sense of a world spinning out of control. And it's a perfect storm, because at the same time, those institutions that anchor us, those local institutions, the institutions that, as the Tory MP Jesse Norman says, help to shape and define us as we help to shape and define them, are falling apart. Our high streets, our pubs, our post offices, the bus networks that connect us to one another and the jobs that keep young people local and families together. This is a fabric of a community pulled apart and people are angry. Our model of democracy seems to me quite remarkable. It's a model in which we allow others to make judgments and decisions on our behalf. I don't think I realised how awesome that is, genuinely awesome, in the, you know, the real sense of the word, until I became a member of parliament and was empowered to make decisions on behalf of 75,000 people, half of whom voted for me and half of whom didn't. And trust is the glue that holds that representative democracy together, and it is gone. In large parts of the country, it is gone. And this is an existential challenge to a representative system because growing numbers of people just no longer accept it. They look to political parties, to parliament, to our town halls, our civic organisations and the media, and too often they feel we work against them, not for them. They believe their function is to stop people from doing things or take things away rather than enable people to live richer, larger deeper lives. They can find no expression of those feelings within the system. Who speaks for them? And given this, where does the legitimacy of our democracy come from? It's easy for populist leaders to come and tear it down. Too easy because we've allowed it to be. And those institutions are meant to provide what Jonathan Rutherford calls the tables around which we gather to mediate difference. Tables bring people together, but they also separate us. 
They allow us to work together but to retain our distinctive identities and values. But instead, too often, all these institutions do is provide the space for protest. Consider the Brexit debate, how stupid that debate has become, the insults, the slanging match that has characterised that debate across the media, the <laughs> parliament and within our political parties too. Look at Twitter, just look at Twitter today <laughs> and look at the response to the local elections and you will find every variety of insulting and stupid that you could possibly hope to find. But where are the spaces in those systems and institutions to bring people together? and find common ground. In Parliament, many of you will have been. Our committee rooms are separated by barriers. Our chamber is separated by division lines. There aren't even physical spaces where people can sit together and thrash out the common ground. And those institutions are meant to provide bridges too. A bridge spans opposites and in doing so transforms them. I feel this very personally as someone who represents Wigan and has done for a decade. It's my home, it's where my family are, it's where my friends are. But I on almost every major question over the last 10 years, I've rubbed up against my constituents, whether it's the European Union or human rights, the welfare state settlement. We've, we've had these debates and we've thrashed them out in trade union buildings, working men's clubs and the town hall over the last 10 years. And you feel it changing, you both. And you feel people moving and you feel yourself moving too and finding a newfound understanding and respect for people on the other side, even if you don't agree. And these bridges, they're both separate and different, but they're connected. But today those connections have been broken and the opposites are cut adrift. You know, for years in towns like mine we had falling turnout. that We didn't understand what it was because we couldn't hear that roar, as George Eliot puts it, that lies on the other side of silence. And then we had this sudden, very dramatic rise in support for a populist party, UKIP, that didn't teach us that something was wrong. We told people they were racist, but we missed how, in towns like mine, people had consistently rejected the BNP and run the EDL out of town and, and voted against openly racist parties for years. Then we had Brexit, unanticipated by almost all of those institutions, parliament, political parties and the media because they've become deeply disconnected from the people that they purport to represent. And there is a strong sense when, I, when I'm allowed to get out of parliament and go home amongst my neighbours and my constituents <coughs> that the national debate is just completely and utterly irrelevant to their lives. And in a time when geographical division has become much more marked, this is deeply serious. We've lost the ability to understand one another. As Abraham Lincoln put it in a greater moment of historical rupture, our institutions built on the dogmas of a quiet past are inadequate to the stormy present. And like a pressure cooker that's overheated, populism has provided the safety valve. It's what Jan Werner Muller calls the shadow of representative democ democracy. Populism provides no answers. It subverts, it distorts, it divides. It is a threat to liberal democracy, but it's also essential to it because it shines a spotlight on a system that has gone badly wrong. It seems to me that we've understood the hollowness of populism, but not its importance. We've railed against the tide, but we haven't begun to consider how or whether we can survive the storm. And no democratic system can survive without legitimacy. It's up to us whether it is fixed. So 
to steal a controversial phrase, what is to be done? The rules of the political game have changed. There are no obvious reference points to navigate through this crisis. The government isn't running the country. The governing class have lost authority. Our parties are divided and making little attempt to bridge those divisions. There is a sense amongst the public that we're all to blame. And even if people have unrealistic expectations of the power and influence of their politicians, they are right. There is no serious strategy. The only responses we have to this tide have fallen short. Attempting to shut out populist voices, I think, has helped to create the basis for grievance. And I think it's highlighted, too, a tendency in our recent political culture, not unnoticed by those who feel deeply aggrieved, to close down debate rather than embrace it. Railing against the absurdity of privileged, wealthy individuals like Nigel Farage attacking the elites has got us nowhere. Why? Because populists claim that representative democracy is not valid, and they are, I think, winning the argument. And that's how individuals like Farage get away with it, because they claim to stand outside of a rotten system and speak for nobody but themselves. And it's why I think these charges of hypocrisy console, but they don't convince. And blaming technology has become the really fashionable thing to do in Westminster. Twitter is perhaps the best example. It amplifies emotions, it encourages extremes, it rewards oversimplification, and politicians use it far too much. It's had a really significant impact on our political debate, but technology has always been a disruptive force. And now, as in every moment in history, from the birth of the printing press to the invention of television, it can be used as a force for good or ill. It's up to us. In relation to my own party, which has had its own populist surge in recent years, the reaction has been largely to assume that this will pass, that the energy, the dynamism, the anger that has emerged can be put back into the box and somehow we can go back to business as usual. And this is why I think Change UK, which should have been such a significant rupture in our politics, feels like such a hollow response to such profound disruption. The past is an unreliable guide to this stormy present. I often joke that I've given up making any kind of prediction about British politics, but the current anxiety that's playing out across the political system in the country is because I think unusually, and for the first time in my lifetime, the future is entirely unknown. We're living in this state of complete radical uncertainty. This is what Gramsci called the interregnum, a moment of historical rupture where the old is dying and the new cannot be born. The forces that su support the status quo are battling to save it from incurable contradictions. The forces challenging the status quo are not strong enough nor developed enough to win. And in this situation, there are all kinds of morbid symptoms, these waves of anger, the breakdown of institutions, the rise of nationalism and racism and protectionism, and this appearance and dominance of these strongman cultish leaders that appear in these moments of total change. But there have been other moments like this. Post-war, and again in 1979, the year that I was born, there emerged new settlements that were based on the collapse of old assumptions after years of upheaval. We lived again through one of those moments in 2008, when the global financial crash sounded the death knell for the neoliberal settlement that's held good all of my lifetime. But what's unusual, I think, even extraordinary about this moment is that in the decades since that crash, nothing new has even begun to emerge. It is, though, perhaps a moment to be hopeful because the future is up for grabs in a way that it hasn't been for 40 years, for all of my lifetime. The anger out there in the public is not apathy. People want and demand change. But change towards what? That's the critical question. 
And there are two antidotes to populism. There's elitism and there's pluralism. And in this, what Pankaj Mishra calls the age of anger, seems to me only pluralism will do. Why? Because the loss of power and the clamour for more of it can only be met with power. More voice, more agency, more ability to shape the circumstances of your own life. This is the democratic politics of the future and it will be built on institutions that represent the whole country and their values, not just a self-appointed few. And that can bring together those different views and experiences and outlooks and mediate between them and help us build the common ground. But how now, well, firstly, it means breaking open those institutions across politics, media, technology companies and business so that these top echelons of society, what C. Wright Mills called the power elite, alive and well, and if you want any better example, think George Osborne, moving seamlessly from Chancellor of the Exchequer to editor of one of the largest newspapers uh, in the country, without any sort of sense that perhaps being the MP for Tatton was contradictory to that. The, the, the recognition that this parallel cannot hoard wealth, power, con connections, voice to the exclusion of others, and where we set limits on the power of money and what it can buy, where we stop railing at the individuals in finance or the media or the owners of tech companies and start to tackle the systemic nature of the problem, when we stop asking how we can um, create a more diverse yet still very elite group of people to make decisions on our behalf and start to break open those spaces to scatter and disperse power and to restore it to those who rightfully own it. That means putting the tools people need to change the world into more hands and the best example that I can think of of this which is entirely absent from the political debate is data. How can it be that we've allowed knowledge to be hoarded in the modern age for private gain by a small few people. And that is where I think my party has lost its way in recent decades, because we came wrongly to believe, I think, during our time in government, that our purpose was to redistribute wealth, to take wealth from those at the top and hand it with conditions to those at the bottom, while leaving those existing power structures undisturbed. And this technocratic <laughs> approach is what accounts, I think, for the basic irrelevance of modern politics. Populism, of course, leaves those power relations intact too but by pushing some down it creates the illusion of lifting others up to really change those power structures takes a commitment to building a new democratic culture in which argument is central the ancient Greeks thought of politics as agonistic, where conflict and difference are ever-present and choices are made through negotiation and compromise. It can be argumentative and angry, and consensus takes work, but just as populism and its reliance on the people closes down debate, our political culture shies away from genuine dissent. At times, it tries to close it down by drawing the parameters of what is permissible so tightly based on rules that are just not explicit. And so people are nervous to speak and millions go unheard and unrepresented. And fundamentally, it's the politics that's missing from our modern political culture and the politics that needs to be brought back. A friend of mine, Will Davies, argues in his book Nervous States that our political system is built on these enlightenment values that elevated reason above emotion. But he 
believes, as I do, that the inability to feel the power of emotion in politics has become one of the major shortcomings of our democratic system. How people feel about political parties and their values, not just the policies that are on offer. In the Labour Party, we're obsessed with policy. We have policy review after policy review, and we produce reams of this stuff, and we email and WhatsApp each other constantly about what our policies should be. Now, of course, policies matter, but what's the glue that binds? What are the values that underpin? Why does it matter? For me, actually, that was the strength of the 2017 manifesto, because for the first time, it explained why, not just what, and sought to to break open the parameters of what was possible. But why, too, is this often such a disconnect between what people tell me they want as their constituency MP and the decisions that are made? Is it because the people making the decisions are all awful people? I think not, but... You know, why do people want neighbourhood policing, even though there is no evidence to suggest that it cuts crime? Because it makes us feel safer. And a more confident, empowered society, one in which people feel safe to go outside and know their neighbours and walk the streets, surely this is as important to us as crime statistics. And these are the disconnections that populists exploit because behind them are real and valid concerns that are going unaddressed and unmet, that are not able to find expression in the system. Now, populists find ways to connect people in common cause using hate and fear. What is our response? I think it's to find those ties that bind confidence, attachment, loyalty, generosity, kindness. They're alive and well in towns like mine, where largely you get families, big, tight-knit families living close together, people who've lived in the area all their life. They know, we know our neighbours, and there is power in these sentiments. And this is Orwell's invisible chain that binds the nation together. And where is it found? Well, mostly in the many and varied examples of people coming together in their own communities to create change, the only way that it lasts together. It's not easy can be really, really difficult, much more difficult than achieving change at national level. But whether it's the East Marsh Estate in Grimsby that have come together to tackle huge deprivation and the conditions that have enabled hate to thrive, or the energy co-op in Hackney that was set up by council tenants to cut their energy bills and to create apprenticeship for kids on the local estate, and crucially because they wanted to play their part in helping to save the planet, or my own council in Wigan, which responded to austerity, some of the worst cuts in the country, by putting people in the driving seat of our own scarce resources. It saved valued public assets like our libraries, all of which were earmarked for closure, but the people said no, and so they're open. And it sparked a rise in civic activism that meant we haven't just survived austerity, well, it's been tough, but at times we've even thrived. And this is the 45-degree politics which the pressure group Compass says is the future, and they're right, because it's <coughs> bubbling up across the country despite not because of the system. And the key to change across all of those very, very varied examples was the recognition from a group of people that their difficulties were not theirs alone. It seems to me that building a new settlement takes a movement, or as Ernest Hemingway's hero Harry Morgan put it, one man alone ain't got no bloody chance. And within these small local movements are the seeds from which the democratic institutions of the new era will grow. 
So take Ireland, where citizens' assemblies have brought together people with deeply held and conflicting views on issues as contentious as abortion and um, equal marriage. These are issues that go right to the heart of people's identities. You know, you think Brexit's difficult? These are really, really difficult things. They've divided a nation for decades. They've provided really fertile, angry ground for populism. But by providing the shared spaces to bring people together, it's brought to the fore the best of what human beings have to offer. Across the political spectrum, MPs have pressed for these new democratic tools in Britain to help the country in our current malaise. We've been told it cannot be done by a system that is averse to change. But look at Ireland. History says don't hope on this side of the grave. But then once in a lifetime, the long-for tidal wave of justice rises up and hope and history rhyme. We've allowed our institutions to encourage the worst of humanity, but there, in Ireland, as Seamus Heaney captures in those short lines, is hope flickering back to life. And so for all the signs that we've reached the end of representative politics, I think we've just merely reached the limits. We need a different settlement, more power, more accountable, much closer to home. Electoral systems that bring in voices rather than just shut them out. New democratic tools like citizens' assemblies that create the tables and the bridges. Power in the media dispersed right across the country. Um, not just the ability to make TV programmes in Liverpool or write stories in Hull, but the commissioning power dispersed from a small centre so that the agenda, what is written about and who is heard, is no longer set by a small, narrow few who live and work together with similar experiences and similar backgrounds. But it seems to me that even those tools that at the moment seem to divide us offer some hope. Social media has brought a whole range of vo voices to the fore, but in the roar of noise, people are encouraged to move to the extremes in order to be heard, and our traditional media has followed. We've mistaken this debate online for a real debate anchored out there in our communities, and we've become completely adrift from the voices and the grievances, and most importantly, the potential in those places. But it could be very different. It needs regulation, as Adrian Papst forcefully argues, and it needs a revolution in a system in which technology is developed by a small number of private individuals who can direct its ends. This should be a national priority, though, because consider its potential. In 1985, long before much of our modern technology was even dreamt of, the broadcaster and scientist James Burke offered a compelling account of its possibilities. He said you might be able to give everybody unhindered, untested access to knowledge because a computer would do the day-to-day -day work for which we once qualified the select few in an education system designed for a world in which only a few could be taught. You might end the regimentation of people working in vast, unmanageable cities, uniting them instead in an electronic community where the Himalayas and Manhattan were only a split second apart. You might, with that and much more, break the mould that has held us back from the beginning. 
in a future world that we would describe as balanced anarchy and they will describe as an open society tolerant of every view and where there is no single privileged way of doing things. Above all, able to do away with the greatest tragedy of our era, the centuries-old waste of human talent that we wouldn't or couldn't use. Utopia, why? If, as I've said, all along the universe is at any time what you say it is, then say. And this is the path on which an Attlee settlement for the next era, I think, will be found. Because socialists, Attlee said, are not concerned solely with material things. They do not think of human beings as a herd to be fed and watered and kept in security. They think of them as individuals cooperating together to make a fine collective life. For this reason, socialism is a more exacting creed than that of its competitors. It does not demand submission and acquiescence, but active and constant participation in common activities. And this is where the hope lies, because for all of the anxiety, the anger, the despair that characterises modern times, that out there is better if we build it. For all the efforts to divide us, those values of tolerance and decency, the floodlights that point to a plural, diverse, open country, are alive and well in every part of every community in this country. We feel that we are greater than we know. And we've learned in recent years that progress isn't inevitable and that the arc of history doesn't always bend to the left. If we want a hopeful, open, confident country, we must build the institutions that allow us to create it the only way that we can, together. In the end, our best hope is each other. Thank you.